I have to go to the bathroom. Why don't they let us use royal toilets? That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine that? Like, pay five euros, shit like a king. Welcome to episode 4 of Walrus and the Bear, a podcast where I, Walrus, take on the intricate and wildly fascinating city that is Berlin. Every other week, I take along with me someone that is not originally from Berlin and visit one of Berlin's many highlights. On this episode, Sanssouci Palace. You know what uh, Sanssouci means? Without Sousi. Without Sousi. Without worries. Ah, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. That seems like a very good Berlin motto. It does sound like a nice Berlin motto. A place without worries. Now, it's known to be the German equivalent of the Palace of Versailles in France, though not nearly as big. But it's also known to be connected to the most famous of royal Berlin, Frederick II, King of Prussia, Old Fritz. Yes, yes, we enter the 18th century, ladies and gentlemen. The age of enlightenment, of Benjamin Franklin, of the foundation of St. Petersburg and the annexation of the Krim, of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who was Austrian and has nothing to do with Berlin or Prussia, the age of the steam engine and of the spinning jenny, and, my wonderful listeners, the age in which the most famous of all Berlin's royal family was born, Frederick the Great. And we're going to have to step back a little to understand the highlight we've got lined up for this episode. Because to understand where Berlin is today, this remarkable culture-loving world capital, we have to tell the story of a family that ruled over Berlin and its surrounding lands for over five centuries. It was in 1411 that the lands of Brandenburg, a principality in the Holy Roman Empire, came under the rule of a new governor named Frederick von Hohenzollern. Berlin at the time was nothing more than a tiny provincial village, but lay in this principality of Brandenburg and would become its residential city in 1486. Now, there's not a lot happening here in the next two centuries, but this will change after the so-called Thirty Years' War. Lasting from 1618 till 1648, this war had almost every European power involved and would prove devastating for the people living on the continent. Out of this war, a new Berlin would arise, a stronger Berlin, a capital of a growing force right in the heart of Europe, Prussia. The state of Prussia had been around for a little while, but after the end of the Thirty Years' War, it's going to grow in importance. After 1648, the Hohenzollern family ruling over Prussia, Brandenburg, will change the likes of Berlin by several drastic measures. First of all, Europe is in ruins and Prussia invites masses of political and religious refugees to come into their state and work on the ruined bits of lands. The royal family from this moment also decides to regulate and control everyday life of its citizens, putting into place an intricate and bureaucratic system with its center in Berlin. 
But what is most important is that Prussia will begin to grow a strong and independent army. This army will become so big that once the main character of this story comes into power in 1740, Prussia will have the fourth biggest army in Europe, despite being only 13th in population size. But before we get further into that, let's go to the palace, shall we? It actually lies not in Berlin, but just outside of the city, at a place called Potsdam. I'm in the incredible companionship of Carrie McElwain, a former Californian glass artist and now student of dance and context in Berlin. This is us already. Yeah, I know. Jesus. Where, where, where are we? Potsdam Hauptbahnhof. Potsdam. Right. So. Nah. Um, where do we go? I have no idea. Up the stairs. <laughs> of course, the palace we're visiting today lies in a park somewhere remote. How far is it? So, shall we walk? Yeah, I think uh, just Richtung yeah. Palace, right? Or is that a church? No, no, that's not. I, uh, I think it's... Ah, it says here, Park San Susi, 2.3 kilometers. And so we walk through the characteristic city of Potsdam. There's a Ferris wheel. Yeah, we have a Ferris wheel, We've right? We've got a pink palacy building. Pink palacy building, yes. I think Potsdam looks a bit like this. Especially All over, in the, yeah. the inner city. I mean, it's a bit more summery, a bit more uh, holiday feeling <laughs> to it. more coral colors being used and gold. <laughs> Potsdam really has this summery vibe going on. Small houses, often pastel-colored, and palaces and churches in a light sand-colored stone. It was the refuge of the royal Hohenzollern family, getting away from the busy and militaristic Berlin. Obviously, we got lost on our way to the park, so we decided to ask some people along the way for directions. So, uh, let's cross the road here. I have the feeling we need to go a little bit more to the left, but let's ask these lovely people how to get there. Hello. Entschuldigung. Wir müssen natürlich nach Sanssouci. Da sind Sie verkehrt. Nee, doch nicht. Wo, wo müssen wir denn hin? Zurücklaufen? Ja, aber mit der Bruderbahn fahren. Aber wir können doch einfach laufen. Wir sind noch jung. Wir können das ein bisschen so... Wir können laufen. Wenn Sie hier laufen, ist es weit. Okay. So she told us that we're going, of course, the wrong way. But then we're only 15 minutes off. And after a little walk, we finally get to the park. Within it, Sanssouci Palace. So, look at this beautiful place. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of in the center, in the central and now. Stairs and stairs. Stairs of Palace, pa- Palace Saint Souci. I, I, I don't Saint-Souci. think I have been inside of this one. I, I want to go, but we have to check out if we succeed this time. What, what, what do you mean, succeed this time? Well, last time I was at this palace, I wanted to get in, but Walrus forgot to reserve a time slot for the overcrowded palace. And he was not allowed to take his lard over the threshold. I might have forgotten to book a ticket in advance for a consecutive time, but I have good hopes. I mean, that is until we coincidentally run into a colleague of ours, tour guide Alex LaRocca, right in front of the entrance of the palace. He has some rather unsettling information for us. So do you, do you think there's a good chance for us getting in? No. Why not? Yeah. usually got to do this much earlier in the day. It's almost three o'clock. Yeah, but Sometimes I mean, we want to get in, shot, man. Yeah, we find Fucking hell. <laughs> you know what you can do, though? Why? You can go into the... Um, yeah, gallery. I've been there last time. Ah, oh, man, really? I mean, it takes quite a while to actually get to Potsdam. And then the walk to the palace, this is going to be a total bummer. 
I stroll into the ticket office anyway, not really hoping for anything, accepting my fate. And then this lady sells me the last two tickets for that afternoon. The last. So, of course, I triumphantly walk out again and bring over the good news. We got tickets. We did. But we have to go in right now. And so we will enter the palace and see what this Prussian royal life is all about. Coming up in the next segment. But first... So I'll let you in on a little secret. I'm writing this in the dead of the night, hoping that this morning I can finish the narration and the final edits and have the episode finished in time. Because in a couple of hours, I'll be flying to Valencia to meet my former roommate. I'll also be visiting Ibiza for a couple of days, recording a new and exciting radio project, of which I hope to tell you all soon. I really have to keep this Walrus segment short and continue with the show. Otherwise, man, I, I'm, I'm flying in like five hours. I still haven't even packed my bag. So if you're listening to this, it meant that I've made it in time and probably somewhere in Spain for a couple of days. Cuando voy a nadar, siempre se me mete agua en la nariz. Welcome to Sans Souci Palace, the palace without a care, as its creator, Frederick II, called it. It was also known as Frederick the Great, the great. Old Fritz. Old Fritz. Sans Souci is a remarkably small palace, as it was not intended to host courtly ceremonies. So now let's get back to Frederick the Great. Having grown up under a slightly authoritarian father, also referred to as the Soldier King, Frederick tries to make a run for it with his youth friend when he's 18 years old. Unfortunately for Frederick, he's caught and sees his friend being decapitated in front of his own eyes. Not a particularly good start in adulthood, I would say. In 1740, at the age of 28, he takes over from his father, and with this big Prussian army at his command, one of the first things he does is wage war, the first of the Silesian Wars. It is from this moment that Prussia will be known for its militaristic opportunism. And after two decades and several wars, Frederick established himself as one of the greatest Prussian military strategists. Frederick is also known for having established a more modern bureaucracy, making Berlin the absolute center of Prussian government. Furthermore, he was a religious tolerant man. Not in today's sense, of course, but in the 18th century sense of the word commissioning, for example, the first Catholic cathedral in his Protestant capital. It was one of many buildings that the king founded in Berlin and which still have a profound impact on the inner city's architectural landscape. So what do we find in this summer residence? This is the place where he used to chill out, I guess. Let's walk around a bit. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like a real fancy bathroom. There's always this air of not being able to talk here. No, not just the, the air we're smelling right I know, now. I know, it's like, it is a dense mm-hmm. Ooh. This is a decadent room. I love the spider web in the middle that the chandelier is hanging out of. Oh, yeah. That's pretty, that's yeah. pretty awesome. It is also kind of um, oppressive or something in a way. Not oppressive, but there's so much. You're talking about Baroque? <laughs> yeah. Like there is not an empty... It is. It's an oppressiveness of detail. <laughs> it is Baroque. That's what mm-hmm. it is. 
there's paintings, there's pieces of furniture, gold of course. This is entirely new, an oval room, high ceiling with this kind of sort of lantern above, bringing light in his room. Yet again, a lot of gold. Uh, I think my favorite detail so far in this room is there's like a, a golden statue here of the empty armor, and there's like something sort of just flying out of the head of it, <laughs> yes. or like spelling upwards out of the empty armor. Man, you have eye for detail. That is, that is good. Great. Now, the palace is incredibly Baroque. The rooms are quite small, but they are lavishly ornamented with gold and plaster work. There's plenty of furniture in each room and many paintings. But by far, the highlight of our visit is the room at the end of the tour. Okay, I like this. This is Baroque at a new level. Oh my god. This has an entirely different feel to it. So we just stepped into this yellow room filled with fruit, fruit and flowers. Birds. Like wooden relief on the wall of birds and fruit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. Oh, the chandelier is great. It's like full of... I like this room better. It's not so Baroque, you know? It's not there's so much gold and stuff, but it's still quite extravagant. It's ridiculous. And there's this integration of like the wood sort of like dripping onto the mirror. Mm -hmm. Not dripping, it's supposed to be some sort of tassel curtain thing. But, but do you think it's the same kind of era or do you think it's later? or? Well, I mean, all this, it said it was built in two years, and if they were living in it in the 1800s, I mean, this is well past, like, Baroque as an actual mm -hmm. time, you know, so the whole palace is like a mishmash of, like, I guess what they liked, greatest hits of art history. <laughs> and it gets even better with the audio guide we have with us. The motif on the lower part of the walls looks like a low fence in a park. Above it, we can see garlands of flowers, fruits, and animals. Even the chandelier is elaborately decorated with flowers and leaves. The extreme naturalism of the decoration is astonishing. Storks and herons, parrots and cranes, and even a little monkey and a squirrel gamble across the walls. These highly realistic images of nature form part of the unmistakable style of Friedrichian Rococo. He did. Another mark that old Fritz left behind. All in all, we spent maybe half an hour in the palace? Half an hour. I mean, that's not an awful lot. I never felt like we were even rushing things. So what do you think of it? Of this? Yeah. That's good. Yeah? Yeah. Now what do we, you think? We, we, yeah, well... Broke I, enough for you? I don't know. I, I, I kind of expected it to be bigger. Also, I've, I found all the rooms quite tiny. Yeah. Like all the rooms were quite small, they had luxurious items in them, but mm. I didn't think they were... But now if we look at the building from the outside, it is quite narrow, no? It's, if it's just that, it's... Yeah. I mean, there's more to see than what we saw, but... I, know, I expected more of it, I guess. <laughs> I did expect it more of it, but luckily we have some more time to stroll through the gardens, enjoy the last rays of autumn sun and sit down and discuss city life. In the middle of the park, I bring up how green and widely set up I think Berlin actually is. Coming from California, Carrie sees things slightly different. City living. Like, actually, for me, living in Berlin is one of the most dense urban environments I've lived in. Mm. Yeah. And some days I'm, like, miss in L.A. Like, one of my favorite places to go mm -hmm. is the top of this hill. And you just get up there and you can see the whole city spread out below you. Mom. And, yeah, you still hear, like, car sounds, but it's very... You feel completely alone up there. Mom. Absolutely love that place. But don't you feel that you, you are 
quite easily also able to get out of the city here in Berlin. I mean, there's a shitload of lakes around here. Yeah, but, and Like, I used to live next to this hill, so I could just go there. Mm. Yeah, I could be, like, up and down the hill within an hour. If I want to go to the woods mm-hmm. in Berlin, that's going to end up being, like, a three-hour experience. Mm. Like, getting there on the train. I never did. For some people, moving to a city can be simply a new adventure. A way of messing with your day-to-day life back at home. Or to get some new thrills. When I speak to Carrie, however, I realize there's also a political argument to be made for leaving your home ground and seeing new ways of life. We speak about strategies, ways in which we can actually make a society work, to not be complacent with the power structures already in place, but to reflect upon them and change them if necessary. Are you contributing to society here? <laughs> Sometimes. Mm-hmm. On some days. I make culture, people can see it. <laughs> make culture. <laughs> No, but I mean, yeah. do you think that's important that you have some sort of, like for for me, like, to to, like I think, I've became more aware of being part of a society here in Berlin more than anywhere else. But mm. basically, also because I've lived in Amsterdam my entire life, I took everything for granted, yeah. and then moving to another city, and living in Berlin is also really. I mean, you don't know anyone. You're so happy that you, you find people that like you, you know, and you like them back, and all of a sudden you feel part of that. Mm-hmm. So working in a cafe, you feel part of some, some sort of a community because people come there for coffee, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you get to know them, you start to do things with them. So you'll also feel in a way, oh, it would be nice if I can do stuff in Berlin, you know, kind of like make myself useful in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Do you have that feeling as well? Yeah, I think I, I do have that feeling. More than I ever would have had in Los Angeles because... I mean, that really is a city where, like, you just get in your car and you build your own personal life and you go from my doorstep in my car to my job and back, you know? It's like you do not have to participate in a community in the same is, way. Is that because the city is so big or broad? Or what, what is the difference then between Berlin and uh, Los Angeles? And I think it's that, but I think it's, a, I think it's a much older tradition of this, like, uh, this extreme individualism that is very particularly American since 40s, 50s. I mean, there's a really nice documentary called The Century of the Self that, yeah, very perfectly illustrates, like, how this hegemony has passiered, has passiered, has, like, come to be. Mm. Um, yeah. Like I said, I came here because I wanted to see strategies. And I made that decision after, like, Occupy happening in the States. And, mm. Like, I saw, like, the Occupy camp in L.A., like, just disarmed by, like, an over-the-top militarized police force that was really just, like, I mean, this gesture of, like, Here's the fascism of the state. Watch, like... I mean, just watching the narrative of, like, this will be crushed. Any rebellion of this kind would be crushed immediately by the government. I mean, that's but just... Does that mean that you, you felt like you had to move? Uh, had to, no. But, like, seeing something like that was so hopeless that it was, like... I wanted to go, I wanted to go cultivate hope, hope somewhere. I mean, that's why I came here. To cultivate hope, not because I actually thought there was like already a solution here or something, but just like I need to see something different. How's that going? Up and zoo. <laughs> no, I mean I ultimately decided to stay because I, like I said, I had this feeling before of like oh, I should leave, but then it's like if I leave now, I am really just a gentrifier who came for like a few years and then it's not fun anymore, so I'm gonna leave. No, but I, I like I like this idea of the cultivation of hope, but I'm I'm curious if if you then find it found it in Berlin. I mean, and my program is really great because it's like uh, all, the, all the things we discuss are not things I ever discussed in any level of education in the States. Mm, I'm sure there are programs that are super radical, 
um, like theoretically, but I didn't study philosophy. You know, I just went to like some state art school that wasn't very. I mean, it was yeah, politicized to some extent. Of like, personal is political, but that also is like a very like individualized capitalist standpoint of like individuals end all of everything. Um, yeah, I, don't know. I guess I'm a bit of a communist. I'm Are not. You? No, not really. I mean, I actually don't like the binary of like communism versus capitalism. But there's like I said, it's like. I'm really interested in this, like, what are the strategies to cultivate? Like, what are examples of, like, when you think this, you behave this way? And, like, we're always adopting strategies. Like, you have to, we have to believe in something in order to act. So I'm really interested in looking at, like, what is it you believe in that thereby influences how you act? And if you can shift, like, what it is you believe in, what you think the world is about, like, then how would you act accordingly? How would you act accordingly? How do you feel about a present-day society? Where is our form of idealism? No, I mean, it's hard for me to say that I noticed it because I think I grew up in that environment where people were already, like, complacent with consumerism. Yeah, that's like, exactly means how it is. of pleasure. Yeah. Like, I think for my mother or, like, parents' generations that there there should be more, like, dissettlement. And obviously there was because they were the hippies and they were the punks. I mean, my mom wasn't a punk. But this is, like, this is all something that occurred before my generation. These, like, moments of resistance or something. And we don't have something like that now. I mean, like, hipster... That's like our alternativeness, which is not even alternative. It's like a decorative use of counterculture to just be the status quo. It's like a decorated status quo. Like the politics of hipsterdom is consumerism. It is gentrification. It is colonization. Mm, so what is the alternative for them? I have no idea. <laughs> the alternative? I don't know. I mean, no, but how do you have an idea of how you would like to, uh, yeah, See I mean, things work I out. Make, this is why I make art. Because art mm. is like a space of where I think you can like try and reflect upon something and then produce something, whether that is a strategy that you produce or an object to reflect upon or some sort of model or maybe you end up writing a paper, but it's art or philosophy. I mean, it, I think that these things require reflection. It's like you said, people need to like stop and think. To stop and think. How's that for you, huh? You thought this was going to be a nice and easygoing episode about the monarchs and palaces. And then we got all political up your ass. Booyah! That's episode four, Sounds to See and Frederick the Great. An unbelievably warm shout-out to Carrie McElwain, who went all the way to Potsdam with me to talk about Frederick and Rococo. Also, a huge thanks to Isabel and Julian, without whom this episode wouldn't have been possible. Then a big thanks, of course, to Denis Wouters, our beloved sound machine. The tunes are awesome. Then also a big thanks to Jeffrey King and Rapjack for really introducing me into the world of podcasts. Now, I have to pack my bags right now. I mean, right now, because I'm going to fucking Spain. I will talk to you in two weeks. We'll be spending time at Treptower Park at the Soviet War Memorial and talk about Russians. Until then, subscribe on Instagram, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes. It's the only way I know, actually, that you guys are involved. For now, einen schönen Tag and see you later. Bye.